Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a bi-weekly podcast from the American Psychological Association. I'm your host, Caitlin Luna. Before we dive into our conversation, I want to remind you that we love to hear from you. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for us, please email me at kluna at apa.org. That's K-L-U-N-A at apa.org. Now onto the conversation. The spaces we are in every day influence our mood and well-being, whether we're aware of it or not. Creating spaces to make us feel our best is a hot topic in community planning, in the office, and on HGTV. Here to talk about designing spaces to optimize well-being is APA fellow Dr. Sally Augustine, an environmental psychologist who is a principal at Design with Science, a design consultation firm. Welcome, Dr. Augustine. Nice to be here. So the start of 2019 brought us the Marie Kondo effect is what I'll be calling it. Um, She's the famous Japanese professional organizer whose show on Netflix called Tidying Up has been wildly popular. So Americans seem hungry for this type of program to show us how to declutter our lives and our homes. And as a design psychologist, what are your thoughts on the response to the show? I think the response to the show indicates how burdened so many of us are by all the things in our physical environment. Um, We have books, we have tchotchkes, we have all sorts of stuff that surround us, and all those materials create an environment that's really very um, complex visually, and when we're in a complicated visual environment, we feel stress. So um, I think the success of the Marie Kondo um, show indicates that people really, really need to tone back all the visual activity in the spaces that are around them. That are around them. And um, they need to create a space that has about the same number of colors, shapes, patterns, etc., as they're likely to find um, in an interior designed by um, Frank Lloyd Wright. Can you explain more why clutter makes us stressed? I mean, it seems like Americans tend to have too much stuff and it makes us stressed, but giving it away and getting getting rid of it is difficult. Um, So can you talk about why clutter, though, is still stressful for us? Clutter is stressful for us because whether you realize it or not, you're always surveying the environment around you. This is um, because our mental apparatus uh, evolved um, millennia ago, and um, we're still using the same sort of brain systems to assess our world now that we did in the past. So when we were young as a species, it was very important for us to be continually looking around our world, making sure that uh, nothing that found us tasty uh, was approaching. And um, when there's more going on around us visually, it's harder to spot um, tigers, whatever, that, that might be lurking out there. So and when we're in a space that's more complex visually, we get stressed out. Yeah, that's really interesting how like how it goes back so much further than just the current day, how it's it's a part of our biology. Yeah, it it really is intriguing to think about all the vestiges of our primordial selves, if you will, that um, uh, continue to be important in our world. And can you talk about your work you do at Design with Science? How did you get started and what type of clients do you work with? Well, um, I um, have uh, an MBA as well as a PhD and um, 
I got involved in retail design projects as uh, the sort of management type, if you will, when I um, graduated from business school and was intrigued by how the physical environment in stores influenced what people think and behave. That led me to go back to school to study environmental psychology and led me to my um, current uh, practice where I work with people who are designing places or objects or services, and I make recommendations based on environmental psych research um, that um, make desired activities, outcomes, etc., more likely. So I will um, make suggestions about uh, what colors walls should be painted in order to um, enhance uh, creative performance in a space or um, how ceiling heights come into play, uh, how um, the textures we feel um, make a difference in our lives. And I work with people um, all over all over the world um, to um, get environmental psych research out of um, uh, all uh, sorts of journals and into the uh, world where it can make a difference in people's lives. It seems like more businesses and people are interested in designing good spaces today. Is that true or is that just, is it always been an interest? I think at one level, it's always been an interest, you know, since the, you know, first, um, uh, uh, you know, person tried to sell something to some other person that, you know, they've been, um, motivated, uh, to, um, create an environment conducive to that. Um, uh, I have seen increased attention to applying environmental psychology, um, in the last few years because people are becoming more aware that, um, there is a science that can be used to, um, uh, design, um, environments and make particular, um, outcomes and situations more likely. Yeah. Now I want to get into more of the design details, how they, how they influence us. Uh, can you talk about how our emotions are influenced by colors, patterns, lighting, and texture? Sure. Um, I'll start with color because this is what I'm asked about, um, most frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, color has, um, three attributes. Um, it, you know, there's hue, which is the name we give to a, um, uh, collection of wavelengths. And there's also saturation and brightness. Saturation is how true a color is. So like a khaki green is less um, saturated than um, a Kelly green. You also might think of saturation as how much gray there is in a color with less saturated colors having a more uh, gray component to them. And brightness is, you know, surprisingly enough, exactly what it sounds like. It's really, you could think of it as how much uh, white there is mixed into a color. So colors that are not very saturated but are relatively bright, relax us. So like a sage green that has lots of white mixed into it, so it's a light color. Well, we would find it relaxing to look at a color like that, where a color um, uh, that is more saturated but not as bright, um, something like, uh, oh, say a Kelly green, well, we find that um, really um, energizing to experience. But there are a couple... Um, hues that have uh, very particular um, effects on us, like um, seeing all sorts of different greens makes it more likely that we'll think creatively. And um, seeing reds, for example, um, degrades our analytical performance. Um, really? Just for, just, just for starters. And um, 
there's a lot of other interesting research um, that we can talk about. For example, um, when people are sitting on a, um, a, a cushion of some sort, um, uh, you can think of that as a, a haptic experience, a touch-based experience, um, they are less likely to um, drive as hard a bargain as when they're sitting on a harder surface. Um, uh, when um, we smell particular scents, um, even if they're very subtle and we've been being exposed to them for, and we've been exposed to them for a long time, well, um, they have um, significant influences on what goes on in our heads. Um, for example, when um, uh, we smell lavender, we're more likely to trust uh, those who are nearby and smelling um, lemon is um, likely to enhance our cognitive performance. So, you know, we can work our way through the senses one by one and see how various different um, stimuli um, influence how we think and behave. And we can also think about more uh, psychosocial type factors such as, um, you know, humans need for privacy, um, uh, uh, their need for control over their physical environment, um, you know, basically everything you can see, hear, feel, etc., around you has some influence on what goes on in your brain. And what about patterns? Are there any particular patterns that are more maybe jarring or upsetting than other patterns or more soothing? Well, it's interesting to think about patterns um, because, you know, they're composed of different shapes and colors and types of lines and things like that. And something that's... Um, uh, really significant to consider when you're um, choosing a pattern for a, a, a place in your life is the relative number of curving lines versus the number of straight lines. You know, and, and no pattern or place is entirely curvilinear. I mean, that seems like a cartoon. Or entirely rectilinear. You know, a place that's all rectilinear makes you, well, that that that's like... Um, an awful spaceship horror movie type interior. So when we're exposed to relatively more curvy lines, we um, think a space is um, more comfortable. Where when we're seeing mainly rectilinear lines, you know, straight lines meaning at right angles, for example, well, thoughts of efficiency come to mind. So, you know, these sorts of lines along with color, etc., are important considerations when patterns are being selected. Yeah, it's so fascinating that this is all happening really without us being cognizant of it, I think, for the most part. Um, and lighting, too. I mean, for example, like I like to don't really like fluorescent lighting and I use a lamp in my office. So lighting is an important component to me. Can you talk about the, you know, what it means to other people and what lighting is beneficial, what lighting is difficult for people? Sure. When we're thinking about lighting, um, it's really important to align with whatever people are trying to accomplish or what sort of experience people are trying to have in a space. So um, if you want to relax um, or um, think creatively, a warmer light can, can really work out well, you know, and this should, would be no surprise to people because, you know, what do we do when we want to relax and hang out with people and have a good time? We tend to light a fire and, um, you know, bring out the candles, all of which produce, um, warm light. But, um, there's a time 
for um, cooler light. And cooler light is good when you're trying to do something a little more analytical. Mm -hmm. And also um, when you need to rev yourself up and give yourself a boost of energy. So, um, you know, if you um, uh, are trying to work out, um, you want to turn on the lamps in, you know, whatever space you're working out in that have um, the cooler colored light bulbs in them. Mm -hmm. Um, and what about how does sound play into all this? Because so so noisy spaces for some people can be really aggravating, but for other people they can really thrive in a noisy environment. So, sound has a lot of um, subjective elements to it. Mm -hmm. um, when um, we feel more positive about the people making the noise or um, the noise itself has um, good associations to us, we're less likely to be aggravated by it. But um, generally, um, uh, we um, are distracted in, in workplaces and things like that by um, conversations and particularly conversations that seem like they might have some relevance to our life. But we also never want to be in a space that's completely silent. I mean, you know, first of all, it's impossible to cre create a space like that in everyday life. But also, that's just plain weird to us. That isn't where our um, uh, ears and, you know, uh, brains developed, you know, the spaces where we um, spent our early days, you know, wasn't wasn't silent. There was always a, a little bit going on. And um, some interesting recent research indicate a relatively recent research indicates that um, hearing nature sounds, the sorts of sounds that you might hear um, in um, like a meadow on a lovely spring day. Well, that um, is is um, cognitively restorative to us. So, you know, if we've become mentally exhausted doing work that requires concentration or focus, if we hear sounds like um, gently rustling leaves or um, uh, a burbling brook, etc., cetera, um, we um, can restock our mental processing power and also, you know, we become a little less stressed. And I want to go back to what you talked about before about scent and how important that is. I mean, it's pretty widely known that scent is uh, plays an important part of memory recall. But how right. can scent, scent be used to help us remember to be creative? I mean, you said lemons play an important role. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Lemon is linked to um, enhanced creative performance. But um, there are um, two sorts of different um, scent-related experiences. There are um, some that seem... Um, pretty universal, like the ones I was talking about with lavender and trust and um, lemon and um, cognitive performance. Um, but there are others that are unique to each individual. Uh, so, um, you know, if um, you had um, lovely conversations with family members on your grandmother's front porch and your grandmother, um, uh, cultivated all sorts of different kinds of honeysuckles or whatever, or honeysuckle plants, and they, you know, um, surrounded that porch, you'll have all sorts of positive associations to the scent of honeysuckle that are unique, you know, to you and, 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 and your family. So, um, you know, um, we need to think about more general responses um, to, to scents as also, as well as more uh, idiosyncratic ones. Um, is there a scent that can help us um, learn better? 
Yeah. Um, generally, um, a scent um, such as a floral scent that um, is likely to be perceived as pleasant and boost our mood would be a, a good sort of um, uh, uh, odor to smell while we're um, uh, learning new material. Um, you know, anything that will um, boost our mood um, uh, makes it more likely that we'll have um, uh, productive educational experiences, um, get along with others, etc. And how can a furniture be arranged to create a certain feel? I mean, this might be difficult because it's such a broad question, but if you're trying to create comfort, how can you arrange furniture? If you're trying to be create more of a um, serious office environment, how can you arrange furniture? Sure. Um, when you're arranging furniture, you need to think about um, what's going to happen in the space and who's going to be there. For um, example, um, we've um, all had the experience of uh, walking into a classroom and finding the chairs arranged in a circle, for example, or um, uh, sitting at a, 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 a roundish table where everybody can make a ready eye contact with each other. Um, people generally are more likely um, to participate in a conversation, etc., when they can make eye contact with others. But um, there are some cultural components to eye contact. And um, those of us who were raised in the West are a lot more into making eye contact and maintaining it than people who have grown up in other parts of the world. So um, if you're creating a space where people from many cultures are likely to be present, it can be a good idea to have um, some sort of um, low, um, like, focal point like flower arrangement in the middle of a table that people can gracefully divert, uh, divert their gaze to um, when they need an eye contact break from others. You know, also we have to think about things like um, interpersonal spaces when we're arranging furniture. You know, uh, some of us, based on our culture, personality, etc., like to be closer um, to each other um, than others do. Also, personality influences um, the sorts of seats people prefer, just as an example. People like me who are extroverted are a lot more positive about sharing a sofa, for example, with others than people who are introverted. So there are a lot of factors that go into um, uh, furniture selection and, um, and where furniture is placed in an area. Yeah, it does really sound like it. And, you know, going from my own experience of home decorating, that can be a challenge with how to make make the space appear larger. I mean, you can use mirrors maybe to help sure. make a space larger. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the um, most straightforward ways to make a space seem larger is to paint the walls a lighter color. Mm -hmm. um, walls that are a lighter color um, seem a little further away than mm -hmm. they actually are, which is... Um, uh, often a good thing. Very few of us live in um, homes or work in environments where the rooms are too big for us. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Most of the time you're trying to make it look bigger, but so it's, pro it's probably not a good idea to paint the ceiling a dark color because it can probably make it feel like you're right. Walls you closing the, in. If you paint the ceiling a dark color, it does seem to um, move down on you. A, 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 <laughs> that can really get to uh, feeling oppressive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I watched this documentary a while ago called City in the Sky about how airports desi- are designed in such a way that allows people to find their way without signs. And it's fascinating because a lot of these cues were all subconscious and subtle, but they worked. They directed people in a specific direction. So you talk about how that works. You know, humans have this tendency to always be looking through the world around them. And they also um, desire to um, move through spaces in particular ways. For example, um, those of us in in the West, particularly who drive on um, the same side of the road that we do in America, tend to, um, you know, uh, travel, you know, towards the um, uh, towards the right. We um, uh, we tend to keep going in a straight line unless there's something that diverts us. We tend to stay on the same material um, underfoot. So if we're um, uh, walking on a carpeted path, a carpeted surface, we're unlikely to leave that carpeted surface unless we have a good reason to do so. And this kind of um, uh, proclivity, if you will, among people uh, uh, can be used um, to design in environments that make it more likely they'll travel to one mm-hmm. space or another. Or there's other things that come into play as well. Like we tend to um, walk uh, towards bright lights or, or a window. And this is another example of the way an environment can keep people moving and mm-hmm. moving mm-hmm. toward their desired goal. Yeah, that's really, it's really fascinating just to think about all the things you just, you take in as you're, you know, walking through a space that help you find your way, the wayfinding. Yeah, people are really cool. (laughs) Our brains are really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, they certainly are. Um, And there's been a lot of talk about the open office concept being dead and really not working out for a lot of people. Um, So what advice do you have for clients about creating an office space that allows for collaboration, creativity, but also also allows for privacy? Sure. Um, The open office um, is really um, evolving from what people classically think of an open office to what's known as an activity-based workplace. And in an activity-based workplace, there are a range of different sorts of spaces that people can use at different times. And activity-based workplaces really seem to work out, um, if you don't mind the pun, um, pretty well for um, users because um, when people are doing something that doesn't require quite as much concentration or focus. They can hang out in a place like a, a sort of at work uh, lounge or coffee area, for example. But when they really need to um, uh, concentrate, um, either alone or with others, they can move to another sort of space. So, you know, having flexibility in terms of um, the um, environments available and the ability to um, control where we work is great for our performance, our mood, you know, so all things good flow out of control. So having a a hybrid, if you will, of like some places where you can have your privacy, but you can also have these open areas for collaboration is probably the best suggestion. Yeah. And that's what an activity-based workplace really is. Mm. It's a a variety of different sorts of um, mini work environments all combined into um, one um, corporate um, or organizational area. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to a concept you talked about in the beginning about how space can be designed to increase sales. So are stores set up in a particular way to motivate us to buy? 
Yeah, there's all sorts of uh, things that happen in retail environments that um, uh, encourage um, people to um, uh, make purchases. You know, for example, um, you know, color selection can can be an important way to um, uh, in you know uh, drive sales. You know, if you've got a more of an impulse purchase type. Uh, good, you make an environment um, a little more energizing if um, consideration is required uh, to select among goods available. You want the environment to be a little less um, energizing, for example. You know, and all this gets down to really thinking about what sort of shopper you're dealing with. Some people are. Um, at particular points in time, much more utilitarian, you know, focused in, in, in their shopping. You know, they, you know, have to buy, you know, milk and bread, you know, as quickly as possible, get out of the, and get out of the store for whatever reason. You know, and other people are more recreational type shoppers. You know, they're out on a Saturday afternoon with their friends. So, um, you know, you need to consider um, the shoppers and um, uh, what their goals are when you're creating a work environment. I mean, I, I, you need to consider the shoppers and their goals when you're, con- when you're designing a retail environment. Is there a reason why uh, typically at the end of the aisle, there's those impulse like purchases? A lot of times, you know, at the grocery stores, you see candy at a store like Bed Bath & Beyond. You see a bunch of little knickknacks you probably don't need. Maybe you do, but you see them as you're waiting in line. Is that just to subconsciously drive people to, you know, make those last minute purchases before they go to the register? Well, those sorts of end caps or at register displays bring people attention Mm -hmm. to those objects um, and uh, make them uh, uh, really pertinent um, in in ways that might not otherwise be the case. Um, You know, if you're um, in a store, you might not travel down an entire aisle or even turn down an aisle. um, But, you know, often you can't help but walk by the end cap and um, you certainly, um, you know, have to pass through some sort of, you know, uh, register area in order to leave the store. So, um, you know, uh, placing, um, impulse type purchases in these areas makes, uh, shoppers aware of them, you know, and particularly in, um, a checkout area, uh, it gives them the opportunity, um, to consider these items while they're whiling away their time in, in line, um, waiting to pay. And, uh, Design is a big concept in urban planning and we're so city planners and developers are going toward a mixed use development type of style where you'll have, just to describe it quickly, you'll have a large building with say restaurants, shops, a gym on the bottom floors and on the top floors, you'll have condos or apartments. Is this a conscious effort by planners to try to address some of the loneliness and isolation people are feeling? Loneliness and isolation and countering loneliness and isolation are something that um, are are topics that environmental psychologists think about, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, creating spaces that will have other people in them that uh, individuals need to pass through or by um, can help to some extent to counter feelings of loneliness. So, you know, they're being implemented um, more frequently, um, uh, in, in our cities and, um, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. 
And is this a new concept or is this a retooling of sorts of the planned community concept we saw in the last century? In many ways, it's a retooling of something that's even older. Um, in uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, people often literally lived above the shop uh, you know, mm-hmm. or, or the workshop, etc. So um, combining more commercial areas with more residential areas is something that's been important to us for a long time. It's more resource efficient, for example, and uh, just, um, you know, can streamline life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like that's there's a tendency now to bring people into a space. Whereas I think in the past, it was sort of like people wanting more space out in a suburban community, a larger home. But now it's people are wanting, especially in a city like Washington, D.C., where where we are here, um, there's this tendency for people to want to be brought into those city centers again. Or, or or even if you're out in a small another community, you still want a an an area that can be like the town square, if you will. Right. People are social and they need the opportunity to interact with others when they choose. And also, as we um, uh, develop more tools, we need to spend less time doing some sort of you might call them like you know life tasks. Um, that than we uh, needed, you know, in the past. So in in the in, you know uh, years ago, decades ago, doing laundry was um, a much more difficult process. Now m- many of us have access to machines, and that frees up lots of time where we can um, engage in other activities that are meaningful up mm-hmm. to us. And often those other activities involve other people, one way or another. And in your world, what is the attitude about um, the trends you're seeing in, in urban design and planning? Are they being, is it successful? Is it something that's still being decided if it's successful? I think design and design research is always evolving and we're always um, learning uh, new, new things and also being um, confronted by um, new issues. So I think we're um, effectively dealing with concerns such as um, loneliness, Mm -hmm. but we um, have challenges that remain that relate to things like equity. So Mm -hmm. we make some progress um, and other um, issues remain. And are there any basically overall design no-nos, if you will, that, that you could summarize for people if they're thinking about designing their home, an office space, that sort of thing? Something that people often don't consider are the um, nonverbal messages sent by a space. Mm -hmm. And these are really important in terms of our stress levels, our quality of life, etc. For example, we like to live in a home that says the things about us that we value. So we like to have objects out that indicate like we're a sports person if mm-hmm. we um, uh, you know, pro- uh, are proud of our ability to do different sports or that we're uh, uh, concerned about our family if, if that's really important to us. Um, also, in our workplace, for example, we um, uh, do our best work in spaces that um, indicate that our um, employer respects us and the contribution we make to the organization, you know, and uh, 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 
employing organization can indicate respect by doing things like giving people some control over their um, in, in, in environment and also really listening and understanding what employees do so that a space clearly aligns with what um, individuals and groups need to accomplish during the course of the day. So I think that um, we always need to be considering what a space is conveying um, symbolically, if you will, Mm -hmm. to users and making sure that um, those um, silent conversations are productive and positive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've also done interviews about how indoor plants can make us more creative. Um, and I wanted just to throw that in there to have two kind of like last fun kind of questions for you. But um, so how do how does having a plant in your home make you more creative? Well, when you add green leafy plants to your home, your um, stress levels come down Um and um, you are more likely to think creatively. And um, there's probably several different factors that uh, come into play. Um, plants are uh, um, often green, as we were um, talking about um, before. Green has been linked to, um, seeing the color green has been linked to enhanced creative performance. Also, um, green leafy plants tend to have curving stems and um that indicates comfort and and relaxes us to a certain extent. So, you know, having a few plants in a space is a good idea. You don't want to add um, too many. You don't want to create a indoor jungle, if you will, because (laughs) that really increases the visual complexity, something Mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier. And you, the research indicates that the best results are found with um, green leafy plants um, as opposed to things such as cactuses. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the effort that's required to keep a ficus or some sort of plant like that alive is, is worth it from a psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, one last question for you. So you were interviewed for a story at the start of the year about how keeping Christmas lights up past the holidays, a little past the holidays is good for our mental health. So you talk about why that is the case. Sure. Um, I think that when people have positive associations to things uh, such as Christmas lights, you know, they've had great experiences um, over the holidays in previous years, keeping the lights around for, you know, until they feel like they don't want them around anymore um, can uh, give uh, individuals a psychological boost. You know, uh, part of um, the basic story um, that – we're um, uncovering um, uh, in environmental psychology is that people need um, to be true to themselves, what makes them feel good and to their humanness, their human attributes. And so having Christmas lights could be that if you're into the holiday spirit and seeing them in the, you know, early parts of the winter where the days are short and, and where, where it is cold, you know, it is cold and everything. So. Right. And, and right now we're just talking about, uh, the um, associations people may have Mm -hmm. to the Christmas lights, but you can also think about uh, how the various colors of the lights may influence how people think and behave. For example, if um, uh, lots of um, the lights are um, uh, emitting a a golden warmer light, you know, that can, you know, directly help people relax, feel comfortable, get along with others, etc. Like we were talking about candles Mm -hmm. earlier. So this gives us 
gives us a little excuse to maybe keep them up a few weeks longer if you want. (laughs) If you if it's helping your well being, it's okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Doctor Augustine. I really appreciate your time. I was glad to be able to spend the time with you. If you've been a longtime listener or are new to our podcast, please consider giving us a rating in iTunes. And if you have time, write a review. We'd really appreciate it. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we love to hear from you directly. So if you have any questions, comments, or ideas to share, please email me at kluna at apa.org. That's K-L-U-N-A at apa.org. Speaking of psychology is part of the APA podcast network, which includes other great podcasts like APA journals dialogue about new psychological research and progress notes about the practice of psychology. You can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, speakingofpsychology.org to listen to more episodes. I'm Caitlin Luna with the American Psychological Association.